this is Ben Smith. I'm a photographer, and this is my podcast, A Small Voice Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for listening. Hello, people. This is Ben. This is my podcast, A Small Voice Conversations with Photographers. How are you doing? How's it going? I hope you're okay. I hope you're managing to stay on an even keel amidst all the current madness that's going on in the world. Um, Podcasts can help, I find, and I hope that is the case with this one for you. Uh, I don't really listen to it, obviously. I mean, I do listen to it. I am there at the time, and uh, then I have to edit it. So actually, I do listen to it, but you know what I mean. Anyway, I digress. This week on episode 118 is the wonderful English photographer and painter Nick Woplington. Before the introduction, uh, and please don't skip forward because you're going to miss important stuff in between the following messages. Uh, If you're a regular listener, you think the podcast might be worth the price of a cup of coffee for each episode, then please do sign up for a small recurring monthly subscription of like five quid or even three quid actually. And then it's like one cup of coffee per month or something. It's like a small amount anyway. If you prefer, make a larger occasional donation at bensmithphoto.com slash a small voice. And please, if you haven't done it before, leave a positive review on iTunes so that we can spread the word among other potential listeners about the podcast. If you need a new website and you don't really want to go through the time and hassle of doing that yourself, then let me know and I can build one of those for you using the newly revamped Squarespace platform. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by the Martin Parr Foundation. Add a signed Martin Parr print to your photography collection by becoming a supporter of the Martin Parr Foundation or gift a uh, membership to the photography-loving loved one in your family uh, as a Christmas gift, perhaps. Now, the foundation exists to promote the legacy of photographers making important work focused on the British Isles. Uh, their exhibitions in the past year have included works by Clementine Schneiderman and Charlotte James, Ian Weldon, Marketa Laskakova, who's still actually got her show up until the 21st of December, and Tony Ray Jones. The membership programme at the Martin Parr Foundation has just entered its second year. So that means a new Martin Parr print is now exclusively available to supporters. And this year's print is a black and white image of a bubble car, which was taken in 1978 whilst Martin was living in Hebden Bridge in the north of England. And the 10 by 8 print uh, is pigment printed on archival Berita paper, signed and titled by Martin on the reverse. Supporter memberships are £125 and also include a tour of the foundation with Martin Parr, access to their huge photo book library, a 10% discount in their shop and priority booking to artist talks. Previous guests have included David Bailey, Don McCullen, Alex Soth, Bruce Gildon and Sean Davey. All the details of their membership programme, including the activities which the foundation helps to support, can be found at martinparrfoundation.org slash membership. What's more, there is a special offer available exclusive to Small Voice listeners. So when you join up, you can get yourself a free signed Martin Parr postcard with your membership. You just use the offer code SMALLV, S-M-A-L-L-V, all caps, when you um, check out and you will receive a free signed postcard by Martin Parr. 
And if you can't afford a supporters membership, there's a much cheaper band. Uh, it starts at as cheap as £35 for um, the standard membership. So go to martinparfoundation.org slash membership to find all the details you need about that. Now, just to say, those of you who are wondering about how it went with uh, my um, attempt at uh, getting hold of Nan Goldin, didn't go great, didn't get hold of her, just letting you know to... Um, prevent any future disappointment. Nan was somewhat elusive and also incredibly busy, apart from anything else, protesting at the, what was it, V&A Museum. Anyway, suffice to say, one of these days I hope to get Nan on. In fact, you will hear Nick um, Wapplington in the course of this uh, interview um, very kindly offer to put a word in for me with her because he knows her. And, you know, I hope to get over to New York uh, at some point in the not too distant future, because there's loads of people over there I'd like to chat with. And if I do get over there, then she will be top of the list. But I'm just letting you know, there's no Nan for now. This episode is also brought to you by the Brilliant Charcoal Book Club. You probably know by now that um, the call for entries is open to the fourth annual Chico Hot Springs Portfolio Review and Publishing Prize. Now you have until the December the 9th now um, for a chance to be one of 58 artists invited to spend the week in Montana. In the USA with Alessandra Sanguinetti, Jim Goldberg, Vanessa Winship, Todd Heido, Awoshka van der Molen, Raymond Meeks and 15 of the most respected publishers and organisations in contemporary photography. So you can submit your work until December the 9th, as I say. Attending artists receive formal portfolio reviews by speakers and reviews, artist lectures, panel discussions, peer reviews and additional evening programming over the seven-day event. And one grand prize winner will be awarded the Charcoal Publishing Prize will be published and distributed worldwide by Charcoal Book Club. So for more information on that event happening next April 2020 in Montana and to apply, visit chicoreview.com, C-H-I-C-O review.com. By the way, just to flag it, there have been a lot of blokes of late on this show and I did want to reassure you that the gals will be back in force very soon all being well the next two episodes will be women I'm not going to say who in case it doesn't work out because I haven't actually done the chats yet Uh, and on Christmas Day itself of course you will hopefully get the special 2019 year in review show featuring contributions from all of this year's guests emails messages of support I received over the course of the year maybe a few surprises me talking rubbish no doubt so that's all to come In the meantime, Nick Wapplington. Nick is a photographer and a painter who divides his time between New York, where he lives with his English professor wife and their young son, and London, where his older son still lives and where he has a studio and a live workspace. Nick has produced many photo books over a long career so far, collaborating with established publishers such as Aperture, Corner House, Mac, Fiden and Trolley, and producing low-fine zine-style publications in small numbers, and also more recently self-publishing through Jesus Blue, the imprint he has founded this year with his friend, the designer Johnny Liu. His work has been shown in solo exhibitions at Tate Britain and the Photographer's Gallery in London, at the Philadelphia Museum of Art and numerous other institutions. In 1993, he was awarded an Infinity Award for Young Photographer by the International Centre of Photography, and his work is held in the permanent collections of the Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum in New York City, Victoria and Albert Museum in London, and the National Gallery of Australia, among uh, numerous others. Nick uh, travelled extensively during his childhood as his stepfather, who he thought at the time was his biological father. We'll get to that in the interview, don't worry. Worked as a scientist in the nuclear industry. Uh, He studied art at West Sussex College of Art and Design in Worthing, Trent Polytechnic in Nottingham and the Royal College of Art in London. 
and from 1984, Nick would regularly visit his grandfather on the Broxtow estate in Aspley, Nottingham, where he began to photograph his surroundings and some of the families who lived there. And he continued with this work on and off for the next 15 years. And from it came two books, Living Room and Weddings, Parties, Anything, as well as numerous exhibitions. Other bodies of his work include Safety in Numbers, a bleak study of the ecstasy drug culture in the mid-90s, The Indecisive Memento, a global road trip where the journey itself was the artwork, Truth or Consequences, a pictorial game based on the history of photography using the town of Truth or Consequences in New Mexico as a backdrop inspired by the rules of the 1950s television show, and You Love Life, in which he uses pictures taken over a 20-year period to construct an autobiographical narrative. Nick worked on a major book project with the fashion designer Alexander McQueen during 2008-2009 called Working Process, the title referring to both McQueen's working process as a fashion designer and Nick's working process as an artist making photo books. In March 2015, this project became the first one-person exhibition by a British photographer in the main exhibition space at Tate Britain in London. Nick participated in the photography collective This Place, founded by Frederick Brenner, contributing the book Settlement, a study of Jewish settlers living in the West Bank, portrait and landscape photographs taken with a large format camera which is uh, one of the things he talks about during our chat while continuing to make photographic works nick has since 2010 devoted much of his time to his practice as a painter so uh that's nick brilliant to meet him um, amazingly interesting bloke um we started off with a little chat about politics and brexit and stuff and some of the things he was telling me was made made my jaw drop frankly um he's the sort of person who knows all kinds of interesting people and therefore has access to all sorts of interesting information. But I digress yet again. Please enjoy this chat I had with Nick Wapplington. Yeah, oh man, I mean, we're rolling, but I won't include all that. <laughs> no, no. But it sounds almost far-fetched, though, that that kind of, you know, politics gets into this kind of area of almost um, of conspiracy theory. Yes. And... And yet I don't necessarily doubt some of the things that you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, I mean, I, I talk to people who are in kind of positions of power, wealth and knowledge that I know who will only ever talk to you in person, won't talk to you via text messages or email you. But if you kind of get them in the right place at the right time, they kind of divulge certain bits of information that they have. That It does sound very conspiracy theory like the whole Brexit thing. Uh, but... You know, I don't believe in a country that has been kind of controlled and organized so well for the last thousand years that this is a kind of random act mm. of kind of self-harm. Mm. I think that there is behind it some very well kind of thought out strategies that benefit the, pop the, the part of the population that has controlled this country for the last few hundred years you know I, I think that and it's a little bit like you know who shot jfk i mean what you're actually told is one thing no one believes it but no one will ever find out the actual truth mm, mm. you know and i do feel that about brexit you know um yeah makes, so there's no point kind of worrying too much about it yeah and yeah. it just makes the rest of us we just makes yeah. you feel like a pawn in this huge kind of you know conspiracy yeah. machine <laughs> anyway yeah, um yeah, yeah. Well, really, we ought to be talking about photography. Okay, yeah, no, but, um, I'm happy to I'm, talk to you about photography. Yeah, I'm fascinated by, by, I don't know, this kind of life that you've kind of created for yourself because um, you were saying you spend half the year in the USA, in, yeah. in New York, I guess. 
Yeah, not always in New York. We do ah, kind of... You um, move about. Yeah, mainly in New York, uh, but we do try and spend some time in California, depending on the kind of work situation. Mm. Uh, do you well. have actual homes in those places, or are you kind of Airbnb it kind of thing? No. Well, we have a house in New York. When we're in California, we're very fortunate. We have a friend who has a house there who lives in New York. Oh. So we have access to, okay. to her house, right. basically. Yeah. But when you say we, you're talking about you and your wife, because your wife is American, basically. Yes, yes. Okay. What does she do? She's um, a Renaissance poetry expert at Columbia University. Wow. So yeah. she's an academic. She's an academic, okay. yeah. She's an English professor, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. So... What age are your kids these days, then? You've got some grown-up ones. No, well, there's two. They're 15 and 4. Oh, okay. The 15-year-old is on the way here now yeah. looking for money. So where does he live? <laughs> he lives here. Oh, okay. He doesn't like America. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. You, you were saying, so you're, you're kind of, you're not entirely happy being there for the most part. I mean, you, you'd probably feel more comfortable. I like, you know, I'm kind of... It's funny, when I'm there, I'm kind of homesick and uh, I don't like watching the football in the morning. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah this kind of wrong. thing. You know, yeah, it feels really wrong, especially if Arsenal have got their 12.30 kickoff, you know, and I'm having to get up at 7.30 on a Sunday, Saturday morning to watch it. And then, yeah, and, you know, I miss my friends and I miss going to the pub and, you know, things like that. But, you know, uh, but ultimately when I come back here, I miss the energy mm. of New York, just yeah. the kind of, the, all the time, it's just ongoing, kind well, of, and the vibe of it, and I, I kind of feed off that, and I love that, so I'm kind of caught yeah. between the two things that I both really love, and and so maybe the, the way for me, you know, the best thing is the kind of 50-50 existence, right. um, you know, we can't come back at the beginning of May, I don't go back again till October, you get your fix uh, yeah. of both in a way, but yes. like yeah, that that energy yeah. That, yeah. that New York has is that is so famous for it. Really is, yeah. it is a real thing, and it is tangible when you're there. Yeah, yeah. Do you find it? Does it get your creativity flowing, as it were? Yeah, I mean, one thing is like you know, you're on the subway. I'm on my bicycle. People are shouting at you. There's the noise. There's the music, and I kind of I love that. And but at the same time, that time is very precious there. So once you know, I get in the studio or I'm out taking pictures. I've got to make things happen there. I don't get the moments when I'm in England. I do have the moments when I'm like, hey, today I'm going to like lie on the sofa. I'm going to go for a run on Hackney Marshes. And then maybe I'm going to, you know, wander down to the pub and have a few beers. That doesn't happen in New York. There isn't right. time for that. You right. can't do that there because you need to make, you know, I've got to pay for the studio and I've got to like, take my son to school i've got to pick you know I'd, so what every minute that i have i work mm. so uh, you're more productive there than you are yeah right? yeah yeah right and this breakdown you have between you know kind of painting and and photography uh, yes. what how does that break down in terms of the amount of time you spend on both is it is it a kind of 50 50 split now, the way that that is kind of the way that it's happening now is that in the winter, when it's very cold in New York, I'm in the studio, I just paint every day, all day. And I'm in that kind of uh, the, the daily practice of painting that you have to paint every day. But then it's the summer and and things come up and I go out and I take pictures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the summer, you know, for me, f- photography, I'm not a studio based photographer, even though I've been making some studio based photos recently. 
for me, photography is me out in the world, mm. right? So the summer, spring, summer is the time for that, and that's it. Just happens, you know. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, because the winter's pretty harsh in New in New yes. York in a way. So you want to be kind of yeah, especially. I mean, I've been using the 6.9 again recently, but, you know, for the last few years, a lot of my photography's been 10.8 and kind of, you can't lug that around on the subway in the winter in New York. I mean, I have done, but if I find something, I look for something, I have this kind of book where I see things to photograph with the 10.8 and then I kind of make my list. And if I can, if the light is right and the weather is right, I might do it in the winter, but, you know, I, I, you know, the sun is low, I don't want really long shadows, so you've got, like, the, you need a bright day, and you need to make the pictures between, sort of, 12 and 2, so if it's somewhere I can get to on the subway with the 10-8 between 12 and 2, and the yeah. light is right, but the possibilities of that are kind of small, mm. uh, you know, um, a day like this, for instance, where it's grey, which would be good for pictures, not bright enough. Mm-mm-mm. today you know do you so. find that um are the two practices your painting and your photography very separate to you or do they sort of co you know kind of feed into each other in some way or cross fertilize or you know what however you want to look at it yeah well that's something i'm trying to resolve i mean i you know i've always painted so initially you know um the first time that I showed photography and painting together was when I made the Indecisive Memento book in like 1997. And I was trying to kind of weave the two together then. Um, mm, was that your first attempt? At yeah, trying, yeah, that was the first attempt at that. So I, I always, I am very kind of conscious that I am trying to kind of create a dialogue between the two practices, but I don't think it really kind of worked until I made the Patriot's wardrobe work, which that, you know, which I kind of made those paintings 2009, 10, 11. But now with the recent work, the, the cave pictures, the Plato cave pictures, where I'm I'm painting in the studio and I'm photographing the paintings in the light, the solstice light that's coming through the window. And I haven't completely resolved that, even though they're being shown in the David Campany uh, show in March. It's not completely resolved yet, but I feel like with this work, I've kind of taken it on to another level. Mm. And that's what's exciting. I mean, for me, I'm always trying to push the parameters of what I'm doing and push myself further and further. It's not, you know... I'm not kind of interested in this is the Nick Wobblington style of photographs and now I'm going to find different subject matter and do that for the next 40 years is not how I work I mean there are many pieces of work out there by me that are in some ways failures but they're not really failures they're kind of a progression Mm. and to something else that I might not have reached yet but that's where I'm going and that's what kind of interests me you know yeah well it seems to me like one of the th- your characteristics is that you are very sort of diverse in the way that you go about things. Like you don't have any particular, you know. I'm interested in everything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's the problem. Both it's the both blessing the good and the curse. thing and the bad thing. You yeah. know, as I'm interested in everything, I know that you know that's. Um, so Nick said that to me when I had the big show at the Tate. The reason I got the big show at the Tate was because I had this kind of multi-layer practice, whereas if I'd been a kind of, you know, 
you know, photo world kind of blinkers on type of person, I wouldn't have got the show because they don't show that kind of work, mm, right? Mm. Um, so, yes, I mean, it's been both a blessing and a hindrance, but I am interested in everything. Um, yeah. You know, I take my inspiration not from photography. I mean, I make photographs, but, you know, I'm not kind of interested in the photo world. Right, yeah. <laughs> really. I mean, I love some photography. I was at the Nan Golden show on Thursday, you know. It's just yeah. amazing to see some of those images again, you know. Yeah, um, yeah I was yeah. there too, in yeah, fact. Yeah, yeah. I, was, I was hoping to... Um, <laughs> I, was, I had a little fantasy that I might actually be able to pin her down and get her on the podcast but um right. maybe it will happen in the future i'm gonna see her in the when i go back so i could always ask her for well, that'd be brilliant. i'd love you to put a word in it yeah I'm, I, i'll always yeah. um you know i'll take any any uh any advantage i can i mean i think it's i'm i'm kind of due for a trip over to to, to new right. york at some point so maybe i can yes. grab her there yes but it was great to see to see that yes. uh, show so so what's your current preoccupation then? What are you kind of primarily kind of uh, working on or, or sort of preoccupied with in terms of photography? Well, at the moment, there is this kind of photo painting project for the David Campany uh, Das Biennale uh, in Mannheim in March, uh, where I'm making a series of paintings that I'm photographing on 10.8, where the light from my studio is south facing and the light is once you reach the kind of now time the kind of end of october this kind of uh square of light appears on my studio wall and as it as we get closer to the solstice it kind of becomes stronger and i'm photographing the paintings as i make them with the kind of um i'm contextualizing it with plato's allegory of the cave uh you know so right i'm kind of working on that which is kind of exciting because you know at the end of january last year i had to stop it because the light changed and now i'm kind of back on with that i'm finishing the paintings and finishing the photos and i've got to get it all done for david for march mm. uh so that's kind of exciting me so right that, now that's what you would you were referring to just just yeah. now so you you are that's an attempt at bringing the two yes. the two practices together in a yes, way yeah. yeah so that that is a big thing right now then of course um um, because it's only just been recently been published as the Hackney Riviera project, yeah. <laughs> which is yeah, I'd love to talk to you about that. Yeah, which is kind of ongoing because it's new, and uh, you know the books are kind of going out to the bookshop still and in fact uh, we've got about 100 left now i think mm, mm. so they've gone quite quickly wow cool yeah which is good so it's been popular yeah i mean yes it has been i mean it's kind of locally it's been popular i think people needed something kind of positive <laughs> mm, mm, yeah. Uh, yeah given the times that we live in because it's a it's yeah. a it's a uk-based project a yes. london-based project we should explain what it is especially for our, the listeners in kansas city as i like to uh, <laughs> refer to so so what now what, what, what this is is um yes. there is this little swimming spot here in in london in in the most unlikely kind of you know urban environment really which uh, and it's just well very just down the road from where we're sitting now really and um i only became aware of that very recently i think probably tom hunter made me aware of it because i think right. he's shot a few pictures there and right. he's another hackney guy he is, yes um and i think he it came up and i thought what was, i thought he was just 
making a joke, you know, referring to the, the Hackney Riviera. And then I realised it is actually a place. A, a place. But you weren't even that aware of it either, were you? No, I wasn't. I mean, you know, obviously where we're sitting now, I've been here for nearly 30 years. And, you know, I, I kind of heard a little bit about it a couple of years ago and then, you know, wasn't that bothered. And then suddenly all the kind of kids of my older son and my friend's kids everyone was kind of the children were all going there all the time and so I eventually I went there with the kids and I was like oh my god this could be interesting to photograph this because you know you kind of get the feeling that this is a lot of fun and there's a lot of people here and I presume it's going to be over very soon mm. they're going to like fence it off like the rest of the, the River Lee where they've got those big metal fences so I thought you know I should take some pictures and mm. um the pictures, I, I was a bit kind of, I hadn't taken documentary pictures out in the open with a large camera like that for a long time. You kind of, you live in a world now where everyone is very conscious if you're taking photographs with what looks like a professional camera in a way that when I first started taking pictures, no one cared, mm. you know. Um, so I was a bit like reticent at first to do it, you know. Uh, oh, because people are a little more paranoid or yes. a little more um, sensitive about it than yeah. they used to be. Yeah, yeah. But then I started to do it and people were not only kind of warm and friendly while I was doing it, I was surprised at the amount of people who actually knew who I was. Mm -hmm. And then the one time I got hassled, uh, suddenly all these people were there like, leave him alone, you know, we know who he is. Yeah, yeah. You know, which was kind of very well, nice. you in your own yeah. manner. Yeah, that's were. right. I mean, people around here know who I am, which yeah. is kind of gratifying and nice, I guess. So... I suppose, but, yeah. what, you know, what's sort of interesting is that, uh, you know, when you live in a big urban, you know, city like London, and try, trying to find these little idyllic, you know, uh, spots where, where you can sort of really be in nature and it doesn't, it feels very much like you could be in the middle of the country. It's pretty, it's pretty special when, you know, when you're used to, you know, having to survive it among all the crap and the, and the kind of dirt and, you know, the, 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 the stuff that comes along with city life. So when you see the pictures you realise, wow, this must have felt pretty like a pretty special little kind of yeah. secret. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's a lovely spot and people are there kind of having fun, doing different things, barbecuing, drinking beer, playing with their kids, dogs, kids, you know, it's kind of... Yeah. And then, you know, initially I was kind of going there on sunny days and I was there a cloudy day and then I realised the pictures on the cloudy days were the better pictures. Right. And then you got that kind of very dark, subdued light that made for the most kind of interesting pictures. So I started hanging out there on cloudy days and then I was kind of very defined, I think, by that period in June, July 18 when, you know, it was really hot, wasn't it? Last yeah, we had year. a heat it was wave. Like, it yeah. was like we had a know, proper heat wave. Yeah, it was the hottest summer I can remember since the one in '76 when I was a small child. Yeah. You know, which I'm probably you're old enough to remember too. Yeah. Well, I think. I think we're the same age. Yeah, I think yeah we were born right. in the same year. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So that was a kind of magical summer, and then there was the football, and we were doing okay right, in the right. football. I love football, so all those things kind of came together. I remember at the end of the summer saying to my friends saying, yeah, that was a really good summer. You know, well, that's the summer that people will remember. And I had all the pictures and then I went to 
some of the kind of big publishers that I know, and they're like, yeah, we love this. This, you know, it's a nice book, and yeah, we can put it on our list for 2024 or something. You know? mm-hmm. So I'm like, no, it needs it needs to happen now. So. And so I kind of twisted the arm of my friend, the art director, Johnny Liu, into starting a little publishing company. And he luckily he he was up for that. <laughs> I don't know how he feels about it mm. now. And so we were able to turn the book around in six months. Right. And then, right. um, yeah. So the, the fashion for sort of doing stuff yourself is kind of, you know, pretty of the moment in a way. And, yeah. um I, in a way, I'm surprised you haven't done that before because you've done so many books over the years yeah, with different publishers. Was it was it something that you know you, you'd never really considered? No, I mean I've made kind of fanzine style books. There used to be a machine called the Cafe Creme publishing machine, where it was actually meant to be for novels, where you could send a PDF to the bookshop McNally Jackson on Prince Street in New York and they would put the PDF into a machine and it would print the book and bind it and they'd like pop out at the other end like Willy Wonka's factory. So I was like, let's try this with photos. Then pictures may look terrible, but let's just do it. And I did it and the pictures did look really like low quality, but I started to make these books from this machine. And when I was on the plane to New York... I would uh, you know, get out in design and I'd start to edit the pictures from whenever the last time I went to New York and I'd get to New York and I'd kind of print 20 to 100 of these books. I'd give some to David at Dashwood to sell and the rest of them I'd just give them away mm. and I made a whole series of these books mm. and, you know, they occasionally they pop up on, you know, a books for a couple of hundred pounds or whatever but they're very hard to find yeah yeah and so that was my kind of first kind of self-publishing a kind of lo-fi approach yeah yeah but now you can do it in a very you know sophisticated way to the point where um i mean obviously the the actual printing process could you know can be just the normal kind of offset thing but the, the, the way in which one can now fund it by you know, raising money and Kickstarter and all that. What, what's your view on that? Well, yeah, I mean, great. You know, the, the trouble with it is that everyone is doing it, which means there's this kind of dearth of books. And I think the however discerning the public are, then there are, you know, you there are so many photo books yeah, no, yeah. now that obviously the runs have got much lower um, and you're competing with everyone else who's done it, so kind of for pers- people's money, you know. Um, mm. So, which is fine. I mean, it's just kind of way it's gone, really, um, which is good. I mean, it, I think it's part of the thing, you know, when I was a student in the 1980s, there were like, uh, on the course that I did, I think over the three years of the degree course, there were like 40 people. Mm. Now, that same course has like, five or six hundred people wow. and there's now ten times the amount of courses and ten times the amount of people so all these people are kind of out there it's my son coming up the stairs hi hi can, that's fine Just we're fine we'll, yeah we'll cut it hi. out <laughs> hi how are you doing hi yeah yeah so what are you doing what are we so i'm gonna go to indies and i'm gonna go skate where's your skateboard then hmm? where's your skateboard Vivian's house Oh, right. Okay. I left it there last night because I, I plan to go skating with that. Hi, comrade. Hi, comrade. 
All right, so are you coming back later? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are we going to go and have some dinner? Mm, what yeah. time are you going to be back? Like 10.30. Going... <laughs> you're not going to go for dinner at 10.30. <laughs> well, if you're coming back, you can come back at 10.30, but you have to be here by 10.30. I think it'd be like 11. No, no, no. I'm 10, gonna... 10.30. Yes. And then tomorrow is Jesse's birthday, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to. That's fine. All right. Okay. All right. So, are you hanging out here or are you going now? I'm going back to Indy's house for a bit to chill. Okay. All right. Bye. Wait, wait. What's 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 what's, is is the podcast about your whole career? I don't know. Yeah, you can stay and listen if you want. <laughs> Listen to it when it when it goes out. <laughs> uh, then you'll find out. We don't know yet. We're yeah, still yeah. talking. Yeah. Alright, bye. Bye. Yeah. Uh yeah. yeah. Bye. So where was I? Yeah, well we were talking about the publishing thing. So yeah. yeah um so, I mean I think it's great that there are things are diverse and there's so many things, but you know, like it's like everything, you know, the whole world is changing very fast because of new technologies and the internet or whatever. You have to adapt. Mm. I mean, I'm kind of insulated from the changes in photography because I kind of operate in the art world. And that is basically the art world is about uh, on a very kind of base level is that you you make expensive things that rich people buy mm. and that hasn't changed <laughs> you know right, so right. so you know i yeah. can make i can make a painting that i can get 50 grand for and therefore you know that's a completely different world to it is a very different yeah, world yeah so because photographers <laughs> mostly spend their careers scratching around trying yeah, to actually yeah. figure out how to earn them. Yes. so you've you've played a blinder there in a way by uh not maybe you know inadvertently and, <laughs> and by being good at it but um yeah. but do you think you're like you know now you've started this little kind of imprint do you think you'll will you do stuff will you keep it as it were and just pr- yeah we the second book is launching at dashwood on the 10th of december oh, cool. um the publishing idea actually started because i have a friend who is a brazilian surfer photographer who's he just basically is a kind of surf nomad and he moves around the planet just kind of following the waves and he's very close friends and he takes photographs for kelly slater i don't know if you know anything about surfing but i know kelly, kelly slater, slater, yeah. Yeah. Kelly a, slater is the muhammad ali the of, kind of yeah, pele yeah. of surfing right yeah. so vava is his photographer oh, cool. and so he had this series of photographs that he took on the north shore in hawaii in the kind of early 2000s with kind of kelly at home and then like yeah and other surfers like john john when he was also in a very big kind of surfer who when he was a child and I just thought he really wants to do this book and so I spoke to my friend Johnny the guy who designed Hackney Rivera and initially was like let's do Vava's book for him you know we'll make it happen we're gonna have that book and then you know I kind of showed it to David at Dashwood he's oh my god the surf world is this kind of multi- million pound industry print a lot of these books because you're going to sell a lot of these books so you know we've made the book we are launching it in two weeks time and you know just in time for christmas Mm -hmm. and but it 
it's weird because they are photographs and it is a photo book, but it's kind of linked very much to the surf world. Well, that's smart, isn't it? Because you're yeah. tapping into an audience which has yeah. nothing to do with a sort of photo world audience. It's to do no. with surfing fans. So, yeah. you know, it's I mean, like, John John Florence and like Kelly Slater, or whatever, are going to put it on their Instagrams with a swipe up to buy. Right. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it's like, it's not, yeah. it's not some like little kind yeah. of a yeah. photo ghetto book where no, you might, no. you know. I mean, there are some photography people who will like it. Obviously, you know, Valver is very good friends with Roe Etheridge, and Roe Etheridge is, a, you know, a big surfer. And obviously, like, you know, there are people like that who are photo world people who will be into the book. Well, I hope Roe likes it. I mean, he's a nice guy. I'm sure he will. Mm. Um, but, you know, there will be some crossover into the photo world, but it's primarily it's a surfing book. Yeah. And then that took so long to make that in the meantime, the Hackney Riviera book kind of came along and I said, like, let's just do this. So Mm-mm. I had a kind of vibe that I thought that we could, you know, sell those, which has yeah. proved right. I mean, we've got the last few downstairs now. But like, have you ever, as someone who's done a load of, of photography books, have you ever really made any proper money out of books? Because the, the kind of cliche or the kind of Nothing except narrative. for the McQueen book. Oh, okay, of course, yeah. Yeah, the McQueen book has sold like 40,000 copies, and wow. I had a lot of royalties from the McQueen book. And this is Alexander McQueen, the, the fashion designer, who yes. was a friend of yours and yeah. who you did a, a project with yes, uh, and, and made a book of, just for, for the listeners who haven't don't know that. Uh, yeah. And I'll put so, a link, but yeah. Yes, so that book, obviously... I mean, I think they'll have to reprint that now because they're all gone. I've noticed that even on kind of Amazon, they're 250 pounds now mm. even though there were that many of them mm. so i think that that will be reprinted i mean because there are the interest in lee that was his real his name, name yeah. um is phenomenal and you know and obviously you know i did that for him he wanted me to do that and i was like i don't want to do that i'm not interested in fashion <laughs> but you know he persuaded me that i did it to do it and then of course tragically just after i finished it we edited it together and then you know he passed away and therefore the book is the kind of recording of his legacy right you know um, yeah it was and a that, kind of fitting uh, yeah. tribute really but yes and yeah, yeah, that was a very tragic yes. situation because he took his own life. He did, yes. Um, right, so yeah. Um, so I made some money from that, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but nothing I mean, else. I, yeah, so I presume that, like you say, you know, if you can sell a painting for fifty grand, you don't have to think to to worry too much about the 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 other side of your practice. Yeah. Uh, and I presume you you make photo books for the for the joy of doing it and for the pleasure of putting the work yeah, into the world. Yeah, I mean, you're too. For me, it's just a kind of overall part of my practice of being an artist. I don't separate out the photo books from the paintings. From I made the odd sculptural project, I made the odd film, I've made some, you know, but not really, you know. For me, it's just this is my practice. You know, and uh, it's kind of ongoing, and it involves, and it always has involved. Yeah, a number of different things. You know, when I was a teenager, I was making fanzines. I was painting skateboards. Mm. I was, like, you know, recording shows, you know, with my cassette player. I'd be at the kind of Clash concert holding it up, you know. All these things, for me, are all the same. I right. don't separate them out. No, so, no. And, but I love photography, and I like making photo books. I mean, I really... You know, when I was a teenager, I'd be like kind of 
lying in bed thinking, oh, I want to make some work that's good enough. I can have a photo book, you know. And I was kind of 17, 18 years old, and I kind of sought out, you know, Martin and Paul, who like were British and who had done it, and I went to see them. Right? Paul Graham, Martin Pye, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And so I, you know, at a time when you know photography in Britain, there was kind of art photography that was that kind of world. It was like fifty people. that was it david britain at creative camera and then probably a raft of kind of 50 people i i would say you know around the kind of photographers gallery around creative camera and so it was quite easy at that time to access that world because Mm. there were so few people involved in that world right right? right. you know yeah if you were into it and you were making work and it was okay you were kind of on the inside in a way that kids now young people there's a like you know much more kind of hierarchy and so many more people but then it was there were very few people Mm -hmm. and it was kind of exciting to be part of that and you know you could be in that very easily and very quickly you know so you could you could actually literally make make it your business to go and like talk to these people you could yeah Yeah, i did i was nosy you know tom Wood. I remember yeah. talking to Tom Wood recently. He was just like, yeah. He said to me, "I knew that you would be successful because you were so like on, on it, it, on it, yeah, <laughs> on it at such a young age, you know." But yeah, I mean, yeah. this is all part of so, you know part of what I was about to, to um, ask you about, really, because you're incredibly productive. You're incredibly, um, you know, prolific in a way. I mean, you know, for someone who who's you know for whom the, the photography is only one part of your pro, of your process i know you've been in the you've been doing it a long time but yeah. the number of books that you've m- made over the last uh, you know 20 years or so is, is pretty incredible what do you i mean i don't do anything else but make art i don't teach right I, you know i don't have any other i don't have any hobbies other than watching watching the football, football. <laughs> i used to do a lot of skateboarding but my legs of my knees are fucked right um so that's kind of wound down the last couple of years uh so yeah i mean i get up in the morning early in the morning and i start to make art and then i make art all day i may be sunday afternoon i might not not do it because i'm kind of take my younger son to the park or whatever but mm. the rest of the time that's what i it's my life it's just it's all consuming for yeah. me it's not something you have to like force yourself to do or have no. some kind of uh no. you know deliberate work ethic you just that's what you love to yeah. to do it's my hobby yeah <laughs> and it's it's my job it's just kind of everything perfect it's all, scenario all consuming really i mean an all-day everyday practice that you know that excites me to the kind of nth degree that every day i wake up and i'm excited about what i'm doing at the moment i was talking you know like you're talking about photographers i was talking about this with wolfgang tillman's at uh, his big tate show recently he's still you know he's also now in his 50s has that kind of love to yeah. get up every day and he's excited about what he's going to do today like in the way that i am and we were talking about that excitement and still having that excitement mm. and it's not never gone away you mm. know uh which i wonder if that's something you can actually make a kind of deliberate decision to try and create because i think a lot of people don't have that and and probably wish they did you know but maybe you wouldn't know because you got you you wouldn't know how to do that because you just do it anyway no it's not like you know oh should i do my art today or should i you know go do something else there's just like there's no there is no anything else right right you know um yeah. So I wanted to ask you how a bit of a bore, really. 
Well, no, I mean, I think it's, I think it's, you know, a situation that so many people would just be envious of, you know. And I, I know a lot of photographers that yeah. that are pretty much fixated on it, but it yeah, is. to have that kind of, you know, that product productivity you've got. So, how when it all started for you? Yes. Um, was that school? Like, were you into art from the start? Yeah, I mean, I went to. Uh I was initially I was at a comprehensive in Woking in Surrey and there was a dark room there which no one really kind of used in the physics department mm. so I I started to use the, I don't know why I started to use the dark room and develop films and do a bit of printing in there there was one other kid at the school who used it it was a kind of fairly rough kind of comprehensive. If you can have that kind of thing in Woking in Surrey, it was in a, on a council estate. But then when I was 16, my parents moved to West Sussex mm. and I went to the gram. I did okay in my levels and I went to the grammar school. Right. And the grammar school was a completely different world, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, this is where the yeah. this is where the academically more able kids go yeah. if they can, right? Yes. Just to explain it for the listeners who uh, don't even understand what that what that means. Yeah, so I ended up at the grammar school and then for there the kind of the aspirations for the children are like much greater. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, I was kind of thrust into that world and the kind the kind of kids that I met and became friends with you know their aspirations for their lives were like something I had not known when I'd been in Woking and then there was very much a kind of if you want to do it, you can do it kind of place. Right, right. Aspirational yeah, and, yeah. and that sort of can-do mentality. Yeah. yeah. It was basically run like a public school, but it was state-funded, right? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Right. And so that, that changed yeah. everything for you going there then in a way. Yeah, that kind of... And so at that point, I was like... At that point, because I've been really, really interested in kind of punk and post-punk, and when I was in Woking, I was already kind of making fanzines and kind of you know, nosing around with my camera, you know, and I kind of, I loved the Penny Smith Clash Before and After book, you know, when I got mm. that, when that came out, I was 14, I was like, these pictures, these terrible quality book now, I've still got a few copies of it, and then I was like, I want to do that, and then, I, so, and, you know, Mick Jones is on the cover, so I got to know Mick Jones, you right, know, right. <laughs> you know like, I'm still friends with Mick Jones now, actually. So, but you were just yeah. a kid. You yeah, were just I was a, a little kid. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think there's a lot of people my age that I know who, for better or for worse, the whole punk post-punk thing has completely guided their lives. Mm. The kind of ideas of punk post-punk of you know you can do it yourself you're going to do it everything is a kind of left of the spectrum married that with the kind of educational possibilities of the grammar school it was like right i'm going to make art that's what i'm going to do and it was like there was no plan b right <laughs> it's like you know i didn't you know study accounting or something right. in case it went wrong it was just that that's what's going to happen and the, the, this this is it there's going to be a life Mm. doing this and so at that point you know then I'm kind of trying to work out how you might do that I mean my uncle Paul my stepdad's older brother is a 
painter was a kind of socialist realist painter so I kind of hang out with him a bit and then at the same time I got to kind of you know go to the studio Paul Graham's studio here in you know London Fields where he worked and he had the big processing machine for making the big prints and I was like okay to make this happen you've got to own the means of production you know because right. you can't afford to go and make big prints in a lab where they charge you've got to own one of these machines so like how do I get one of these machines how do I get a space for the machine so by the time I kind of left Nottingham I was like well the way that I'm going to kind of make this happen is I, I need to go to the Royal College of Art because I'm going to make more contacts there and I'm, then I'm going to be in London and I'm going to kind of get myself set up and then when I was at the Royal College of Art that's when I kind of became friends with the Chapman brothers and Peter Doig and Chris Afili and all these kinds of people and then after college you know we got a space on Brick Lane where I put in the dark room and I had a painting studio and I was working in a building with you know the Sam Taylor Wood you know mm. with Jake and Dinos who I'm still very close friends with and then it's happening you're kind of in the art world and you're young and then it's about like getting yeah. yourself kind of out there I've had this kind of career where I've been kind of lucky that I Whereas I've been kind of involved in the photography world, but I've also involved in the art world, which is something that's completely a different place. Yeah, you've had a foot in both camps, really, yes. right from the start, which, yes. is, which is, I guess, is great because you can sort of flip between the two in a way yes. and kind of refresh your creative <laughs> uh, impulses in, in one and, yeah. and then move to the other. But yes. yeah, it's extraordinary that, like you say, that those people, your contemporaries, the people that you've named are all are the sort of, you know, the great and the good of that generation, of your generation. You're yeah. part of that picture. But the first thing you did photography-wise, I suppose, was Living Room, which was... Well, it's uh, the first thing that was published. I mean... Which were, was a degree project. Or yeah, a sort it of, started off. I mean, I made the pictures on the estate from 83 to 97. Mm. The picture, the first three years' worth of pictures have never been shown, and then I think the last two or three years have never been shown. Oh, really? Either. Just explain to to the listeners what the project was then and how it sort of came about. Well, my stepfather, a person whose name I have, Mr. Watplington, he came from a council estate on the outskirts of Nottingham. Uh, And his father who there's a picture of in the living room but walter lived on that estate from the 1930s till he died in 1989 and i had obviously i wrote my father had gone from this kind of poor working what i thought was a poor working class but there was a kind of twist later on that i found out about and he'd been sent on the assisted places scheme to public school and then to imperial college right so and then became a scientist and whatever but his dad still lived on this kind of council oh, interesting. so he'd sort of yeah. crossed the, uh, yeah, the, the class yeah. barrier in he a way he had in the way that people did in the 50s and 60s mm. from the kind of you know the education system was lucky enough that if you pass the 11 plus that you could move into the middle class from the working class you right, know right. so but then, of course, for me, being this kind of middle-class kid from Surrey, to go and live on this council estate with my granddad, because my parents would be travelling a lot, was kind of amazing and interesting and fantastic to take photographs of. Right. And then, I think it was... So I took pictures there kind of on and off for a few years, and then in 1985, one of his neighbours came round to... Uh, 
get his pension book to go and get his pension for him and she came around with her with her little kids and uh, her name's dawn and i was like can i come to your house and take some pictures of you and your family and then that was and that weekend i went to their house on the sunday and that's how the living room project started right so you focused on the same couple of families, really? In the yeah, case. so what I, have, I was photographing one family, and then the, the other family, who are the main family, came to visit them one day, and I was like, can I photograph your family as well? And there's actually about five or six different families, but there are two kind of main families. And then between kind of 1985, 86, and 1997, I would go and take pictures of them occasionally, not all the time, and... I'd go for a week or I'd go for a weekend and then not go back again for a month or two months. Or I'd be in America, I'd not even go back for six months Mm. sometimes. But every time I came to the UK, I would go and spend some time with them and take some pictures. Not a lot of pictures. I kind of hang out a lot. Yeah, so it turned into a... Right, so it turned into a very long-term project. But what kept drawing you back? Was it because you just wanted to... You had a relationship with with them or was it because you saw it as an important sort of ongoing piece of work? I mean, both. And I also like being in Nottingham. There are other things that I was doing in Nottingham at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, I just felt like i should continue it you know um for a while at what point was the book published then the first book was published in january 1991 right and pictures from 86 to 1990 right Uh, i mean obviously in those days you know to edit there was no indesign it was kind of done by hand and kind of placing pictures on the page that were xeroxed and seeing what worked Yeah, yeah yeah so the whole process of of um, publishing the book took a couple of years just to get it from the design stage to the book stage. And it was, you know, a really exciting time to be at Aperture because they were doing the Sally Mann book and they'd recently done, you know, The Ballad of Sexual Dependency and they were working on that David Wanarovich book because he was very ill at that stage, but he was, you know, very involved with them. So I was kind of really young and I was in New York and there was like, you know, all these things going on and yeah, it was yeah. kind of, you know, because I, I always envisaged that once I had the work ready that I would take it to Corner House and they would do the book. Mm-hmm. And then... Aperture, Melissa Harris at Aperture saw the work at Arles and approached me. Right. So you had a show at Arles. Yeah. So what they did was, back in the, the glory days of Kodak, they used to have this European Photographer Award. Right. And each country in Western Europe, as it was then, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. would, would have a winner. And they would get £5,000 for being the, the winner from their country. And then there was a joint show in Arles of all the winners from all all the European countries and they would pick one overall winner who would then get an extra £7,000 and quite to my surprise I won it Mm, so mm, suddenly I was like I had 12 grand I bought a car for two grand a Nissan Micra Um, and the work was at Arles and suddenly you know it it was at Arles and you know they Aperture Melissa Harris from Aperture had been one of the judges 
and uh, so she was like let's do a book when do you want to do the book you know and I was like well let's just do it now mm. I mean I don't have to wait any longer and so but how come the first three years of stuff wasn't wasn't included was that your decision was that some kind of joint decision or I was shooting on 35 millimeter and I hadn't worked out the lighting plot there's a very kind of complex lighting thing that's going on in those pictures that uh, a chap called Roger Beecroft who was a tutor at Trent Polytechnic uh, worked on me with and oh, helped wow. me with and once I nailed the lighting mm. <laughs> that's when it really got going all oh, right so there's yeah. a consistency to that yeah, yeah, which yeah, you yeah. wanted yes and that I, didn't have didn't have that in those first no, three years. No, oh. it didn't. No. no. And then you did a you did a second book, which was weddings. Um, well, it's actually called weddings, parties, parties anything. anything yeah. Bongo jazz, a speciality, which <laughs> comes from the Clash song. Right. Um, and. Michael Hoffman wouldn't let me call it that in America. He said it had to be called The Wedding. So there are two versions of the same oh, book okay. with different... But Clive, who is the chap on the cover of the book who's getting married to the lady, he was a massive Clash fan, as I was. And we used to spend a lot of time listening to the Sandinista album. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that's where the title comes from. It comes from uh, Sandinista. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So it sounds like you already had gone to America quite young then. You were you were sort of spending a certain amount of time there yes. right from the beginning. Yeah. Was that a career move for you? Or was it less kind of considered than that? Skateboarding move. Because skateboarding move. <laughs> yeah. The opposite of yes. a career move. <laughs> skateboarding comes from California. Right. So, you so know, you uh, we, would, we would be sitting in our bedrooms in Woking and Guildford with my skateboarding friends, leading Skateboarder magazine and looking at Del Mar Skate Ranch and Uplands, you know, the pipeline at Uplands and thinking, this is where we want to be. Mm. And so the kind of getting there was what it was all about. Right. And then finding... So, yeah, so that, you know, California was this kind of utopian fantasy. So did you go there with your friends? Or, or? Yeah, I mean, I first initially went to America with my parents when I was very young. My father, stepfather, is was a scientist in the nuclear industry. Right. And this involved a lot of traveling, so we got to travel a lot with right. him when I was younger. We went kind of everywhere. Right, right. <laughs> what was the twist that you alluded to that you you later discovered with uh, your stepdad? Yeah, when I was 18, I found out he wasn't my father. Right. So then I kind of, while he was, he died in 2009, and while he was alive, I kind of... Uh, oh, so you thought he was your actual yeah, yeah, birth father, but he yeah, was, you yeah, calling yeah. Your, your stepfather <laughs> in retrospect? Yeah, I mean, I, if he was still alive, I wouldn't call him my stepfather. I think it would be kind of uh, unfair to him, but seeing as he's dead, it doesn't... I see. It's the actual, that's the... The kind of, yeah. So, but you had a good relationship with him. It sounds like it was up and down. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's so uh, funny to listen to you because yeah. we are we are the same age, and and yeah. so many of the things you're talking about kind of reflect that my my kind of interest at the time, the punk thing, the yeah. skateboarding thing, the <laughs> photography. It's it's quite yeah. amazing because I can kind of map my own memories onto the stuff you're talking about. Yes. Um. So. You went and lived in Israel for a while. What, what? I didn't live in Israel. I didn't. I lived in East Jerusalem. Okay. Which is not technically Israel. I was very important that while I was there, to me, that I made work 
and lived in the occupied territories. Right. So um, all the work that I made was made in the West Bank. Uh, all the photographs I took were in the West Bank, and I lived in the Palestinian part of East Jerusalem. Okay. Right. I would fly, I would go to Israel, and obviously you're crossing backwards and forwards between Israel and Palestine, and, you know, occasionally I'd go to Tel Aviv, uh, you know, go right. for a swim, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> go yeah, down yeah. to the beach. But technically, yeah, I mean, I mean, my... I knew when I went there, it was a fraught place in many ways. And initially I said, no, I said, I won't go there. Um, And, but then it kind of was nagging because what, you know, back to the thing with my father, I'd by this time, I kind of, I'd found out that my heritage is Jewish, right? Because okay. I didn't know that. Oh, right. When I was a child. Right. You know, so uh, that all became apparent in my 20s uh-huh. when they finally kind of came clean with me that I, my heritage is German, is a, is a German Jewish heritage, right? Wow, okay. So, so then when. In 2006, when this dude arrived here in London and said, you know, I want you to go there. And I had this kind of very conflicted feeling about Israel, the kind of... And at first I was like, no, I, I don't think I can go there. And then he kind of worked on me. And then I who thought... Was, who was that? His name's Frederick Brenner. And he wanted you to go there for what reason? He He is this kind of big kind of mover and shaker in the kind of Jewish art world, I guess. Right. Yeah. Um, and he had made his life's work of being kind of taking photographs of the Jewish diaspora. And then he had this idea to do a project where he would invite well-known or famous photographic artists to go there and make work. And... And then I had this kind of niggling feeling that, you know, well, maybe I should go because there's this whole kind of part of my life that I don't know about. And, you know, it's funny. Now I've done one of those kind of 23 of me things. Oh, have you? <laughs> and so I now, yeah, I'm, I am Ashkenazi Jew, German and Italian. Wow. Okay. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. So, but you don't know who you're birth father oh, what, i think you? i do oh, okay. we've got a pretty good idea who yeah uh-huh. i mean there weren't many people in the uk with this particular name of the right age who were right like, yeah interesting so, so it's been a bit of detective work yeah so yeah done by my wife so pretty kind of uh clued in that we know who who he is he's a, a banker mm. he lives in west london oh he's still around <laughs> yeah wow yeah um, interesting but we're not uh yeah we keep saying that he's going to do one of these 23 and me things so we're going to find out conclusively whether he is the dude or not and i need to call him actually because we need to get kind of get on to uh, with that. so you are in touch with him yeah but i don't know conclusively that he's the right person right, right. but we what does have, he think <laughs> he doesn't know okay. either but you know i have a kind of relationship with him i kind of like the idea that we're not sure whether he's the right person or not Mm-mm. you know and maybe that's kind of that's okay that's okay yeah, yeah. but it could possibly be him yeah right um, so so yeah. like what's interesting though is that 
uh, it's interesting that you made the distinction between you know Israel and the occupied territories. I mean, I I, yeah. I was just using it in the most general sort yeah. of term because it's long winded to say. You know, yeah, so you know, kind of, I went there thinking one thing, and I kind of left there five, four and a half, five years later, thinking something completely different. And what were those two? Well, I kind of went things. there believing in the two-state solution that there needed to be two states, and the Palestinians needed kind of self-determination. And then I left there realizing that it's in fact one state, and they just have to give everyone the vote, and it needs to be a kind of Malaysia-type setup. Whereas in Malaysia, there's one rule for the the Chinese people, one rule for the Malays, and they, you know, because the Chinese are not Muslims, and they they live there side by side quite happily with different rules for different people. And I believe that, you know, what I've been reading recently is that more and more people are coming round to the one state solution. Mm. It's, you cannot separate it. It isn't two places. It's one place. And they just need to I make that breakthrough. I mean, people tell me that I'm crazy thinking that, but people in Israel on the left and on the right, more and more people are kind of coming to that conclusion but everything is kind of ham-fisted by, you know, they have this uh, proportional representation throughout the whole country and the kind of the, 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 the way that it works out, that once you've got the, the religious people, the right-wing people and the Russian immigrants, that's the biggest block and they kind of control everything now. Mm. And therefore there seems to be no kind of moving forward and I think that what... The, the, this group says that the you know basically the status quo they want to maintain the status quo for as you know for as long as possible right mm. but eventually i think that the palestinian population is going to way outnumber the jewish population there's going to have to be some change right yeah it's always going to be a complex and sort of seemingly yeah i mean you know the obviously at the end of the Second World War, there were a lot of people who were stateless and they went there and, you know, Israel exists because there is anti-Semitism and Jewish people need to know that there is somewhere that they can go. Uh, but at the same time, there are the Palestinian people and they are there and it's, you know, their land. So this is kind of yeah. a problem, isn't it? I mean... It seems uh, to me, that, well, I always feel like, you know, it's, I mean, I, you know, it seems to me this is it's almost a classic example of, you know, the the oppressed become the oppressor, don't they? I mean, yeah. That's, that's sort of I mean, the laws of the land book, you know, they're kind of... Uh, it's kind of amazing, the hollow land book, the guy who's at Goldsmiths here, you know, the Israeli guy, the academic, I've forgotten his name mm. off the top of my head, really amazing guy who does all this work on it. Uh, kind of... Yeah, that um, something has to change. So there has to be a kind of... But, you know, at the end of the day, I went there and I thought, you know, if I don't make work about it, then in a way I'm kind of copping out. I need to confront things that are difficult. Mm. Was there an expectation on the part of the guy who wanted you to go that you would be naturally, you know, affiliated with the Jewish core, the Jewish cause rather than having some kind of, you know, well, he, uh, you know, he, 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 his outlook on the situation changed dramatically during the kind of 10 to 12 years that the project's been going on. The project started in 2007 and it's now, what, nearly 2020, and it's still going on. And I think that we have changed his attitude 
to the situation he's been on a journey himself especially you know dealing you know with with everyone who's kind of involved with, with Jeff Wall, with Thomas Struth, with Wendy Ewald, with, you know, Martin Collar, all these people have had an effect on Frederick during the time that the project's been going on. Mm. And the project is a kind of an evolution, really, and I don't think it's kind of... And there, there's not a conclusion to the project mm. at this point. I don't think there will be, will be one, but he's definitely... His outlook has gone from a kind of very Zionist kind of um, outlook to a more progressive outlook mm. during the time that the project has been going. Because what you chose to focus on initially was the settlers, uh, the Israeli settlers yeah, on the, the West Bank, um, which, so, is, yeah. which is a very kind of hot topic yeah. in terms of the controversy. Well, or, yeah, um, I thought, yeah. well, you know, I'm in for a penny, in for a pound. Yeah. You know, go straight. If I'm going to go, you know, then the, the settlers are kind of a really difficult subject. Mm. And uh, ultimately fascinating. When I, I went there, I asked to meet settlers. Mm. And, you know, I went uh, to a settlement with... One of the tutors at the uh, at the art school uh, in Jerusalem was a settler, and I went to oh, the, right, the yeah. settlement with him, and I stayed there with him. And what you know was fascinating was that you know it was kind of it was an Anglo settlement, like everyone was from America and Canada and the UK. And then over there were these people, and I was thinking, these people should know better. Mm, <laughs> you know, mm, they're mm. not, you know. And then I kind of realized there are very few Israelis living in the settlements. They're all immigrants from Western countries, really. I mean, there are some Israelis that live in yeah, the yeah. settlement, not very, very, they're, you know, new Israelis, people who have made Aliyah, they've Jewish people who've moved to Israel. And so I thought, that when when I see images of them, what I see is I see these kind of situations where they're confronting the IDF or they're, you know, there's been a bomb somewhere or, the, you know, there's a confrontation with the Palestinians. So I just thought, I will just take these pictures of the land and take these pictures of the people in a kind of very matter-of-fact way, just as a record of what it is. I mean, I think that, um, people haven't say to me personally, but I know that a lot of people have found it kind of very problematic, but I feel that it was very important for these pictures to exist. They've been very popular with academics, and the book in Arab universities. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, you didn't shy away from the controversy of it and the, and the, you know, the sensitivity yeah. of it. But how were you received? Were you treated with suspicion by by them generally? Yeah, I mean, during the, obviously you're you're in a, Israel is a police state. Mm. Yeah, you know, they're watching you all the time, right? I mean, they were coming into the house. They were going through my computer while I was out. I knew that was happening. Uh, I was had to be extremely careful while I was on the ground there. I didn't. While I was making that, well, I made other work subsequently. I just didn't. They, yeah, all the time they were wondering why I was doing it. The settlers were very paranoid about it, me doing it. Mm. I didn't have any interaction with any kind of leftists at all right. while I was there because I didn't know if I was being, how closely I was being watched. So if I was like, you know, rocking up at the 
the kind of uh, the Betzalel offices or something, you know, the people who monitor the settlements, then that might end the project immediately. So I kind of kept away right, from right. all of that and while I was making the work. And it was funny because I would be driving around the West Bank a lot and I'd have these kind of like air, a bit like in an airport where there's a kind of machine to put all your your luggage through and a kind of body x-ray machine in a, in these vans, right? Okay. So it was a bit like being in an airport and they could stop you at any time and make you go through this whole thing. And Joseph Kadelka, who was like in the West Bank all the time with me, like as we were living together for a lot of the time, he would get stopped on almost a daily basis and put through these machines and it would like take hours of his time i didn't get stopped by them once right whole time interesting yeah not and so there was a reason for that i don't know what the reason for that was why but i wasn't going initially i mean once i'd been there the settlement work was kind of finished after the first three years and then i started going into the palestinian cities but he was going to the palestinian cities kind of regularly mm. and i started you know after a while i was going into kind of hebron and then i go to ramallah and by the kind of time i was leaving i was going into janine as well um but at first i was very much just in the settlements right um yeah, so no one could quite figure out, I guess, what you know, whether you were in one camp or another. The, or the, especially with, uh, I mean, some of the settlements are separatist. You can't go in them if you're not Jewish. Right, right. Yeah? Yeah, yeah I've, I've been there, so I know yeah. a little bit about, about yeah. that region. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. So, um, so that's something that you consider to be an ongoing No, I mean, I've... I've I was talking actually with a friend from there the other day. I, I want to go back. I don't think I can make work there again. I don't. I just. I feel I was kind of lucky while I was, was there that it was a calm time. I got to make the work. I, I went and then with the water heater racing car projects, where I was collecting these kind of solar heating containers from. Uh, the settlements and taking them to Palestinian body shops where they were spraying them for me in the car shops. The last time I was doing that, I made more of them. I was, and I went back and I did it. I was in an ambush hmm. and I was just like, I, <laughs> I don't want like, to be. What am I, a photojournalist? Because like, yeah, yeah, it's not really like, your, no, your metier. I was like, okay, this is a warning to me when I was in this kind of ambush and then the IDF came along and it was kind of like there was a kind of shootout with this and, and I was like okay alright I just feel like you know mm. I don't want to be here yeah. anymore and the project if I do need to make more of those I have someone there I can kind of do it remotely now right uh, but I mean I will go back yeah. I, you know I love Jerusalem funny thing was the street where I lived the whole time I was there there was this kind of bit of waste ground at the end of my street, and they built a really nice skateboard park there. Oh, really? Yeah. Were you, were <laughs> I you like in the, the old city somewhere, or no, just outside no, the walls? I was in Abu Tor okay. in the east, like yeah. just on the other side of the Green Line. The Green Line runs through Abu Tor. A lot of the diplomats, for you know, diplomatic reasons, live in Abu, yeah, yeah, Abu yeah. Tor. Yeah. But near the Cinematheque. Right. Right. Um, so, like, where do your ideas come from for projects? Then, are you are you sort of bursting with ideas for things, or, or do you sort of consciously 
sit down and f- figure out what you're going to do next, as it were. Picasso said, I'm too busy to have ideas. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> that seems appropriate. Yeah. So, I mean, there are the, some kind of things that come from nowhere. What you do is yeah, something comes from nowhere and it's a kind of eureka moment and you're like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And then you've got to make it. Yeah. And the making it is the hard part. Yeah. Like this ongoing project with, you know, the Plato Allegory of the Cave project with the paintings and the photos, it's really difficult. But I've got to get there and I'm going to finish it and... But like you know that that's hard. But then you have things like Hackney Riviera, where I stumble across something, and then I've got something new from nowhere that mm. I didn't have like the week before. Uh, so there are very long term projects, and then there is picture taking and painting, where I don't know where it's coming from, and then I realise later on there's a whole series of pictures that are going to be a book next year called Anaglypta that span the last kind of 30, 35 years. And I didn't really know what it was about until I started to piece it together in the last few months. And it's kind of... Um, Tell us, roughly, what's the general... Well, the kind of... It starts off in the kind of late 1980s with pictures of me and pictures of this friend I had Jim and it's kind of he he was a glue sniffer oh right so he's off his head the whole time and he likes staring at these anaglypta ceilings because they trip on them you know so he would trip on them and I spent a lot of time hanging out with him just kind of watching him and I was like and then I have all these pictures of me that were taken at the same time it's kind of a little bit druggy that whole period, and then I'm kind of wondering why I did these pictures and the nuclear power stations and self-portraits, and then I kind of getting this kind of picture of violence, and then the kind of escape from the violence through, with the drugs, mm. and then why was I taking drugs to kind of escape? uh, personal situations and why was I photographing Jim who was on a kind of similar journey but in a kind of much more kind of downtrodden way to me and it's only now as I look at it all again and I kind of brought these other pictures of years after that I kind of gave up all of that that I can kind of piece it all together and kind of try and make a book that is about me. Everything ultimately is about me, right? Mm. It's not about other people. It's not about even the subject matters that I'm photographing. It's about a kind of discovery of me. And what with this book is kind of, is about kind of my relationship to my childhood, to violence, to escapism from that violence. Mm. Because there was quite a lot of violence in my childhood. Was there? Yeah. So From your dad? Yeah. He was a bit of on the physical side, yeah. As as was more common in those yeah, days, yeah, but even like so, really still, really, I'd get beaten up a lot. Ah, oh, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So I'm kind of yeah. So that that needs to be. And then when you have children, and then you're like in a position like I could never imagine hitting my children. No. 
I mean, I just not even no. a little bit. <laughs> no, it's kind of weird. But, but the idea that you, you yeah. know, you'd actually be the subject of serious physical assault—I yeah. mean, it's yeah. horrific. I, you must have—that must have been fucking horrible. Yeah, and what you don't realise when you're a child is you think it's normal, right? Of course you do. Yeah, because or you think it's it, your, your fault in some way. Yeah, yeah, and then it's only when you're an adult then you look back and you realise it wasn't normal. No. Yeah. And or in any way acceptable. <laughs> yeah, so it's been now I'm 54 and I'm looking back at all these pictures and I'm kind of working out what... So in a way, the process of doing the project is helping you to sort of kind of... Yeah, I'm not trying to be Joe Spence. It's not phototherapy. But no, I don't mean that, it but is. it's helping you to, <laughs> you know, it's helping yes. you to at least... F- Figure it, figure it out in some respects yes. or contextualise it. Yes, yeah, totally, yeah. Mm. Interesting. And I think it's going to be an interesting book. Yeah. Uh, so you're delving into your into your archive in a way and finding stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I yes, I have all the pictures. It's going to be a fairly dense book. Um, it's not completely resolved. I mean, I've got this big pool of pictures. And I need to get on InDesign and kind of start sequencing and then working out where the gaps are going to be and then working out what can be in those gaps. Uh, uh, I hope to do that between now and kind of next June, print it in June and then have it kind of ready to go Mm. in September, October. But if it takes another year, it takes another year. I'm not going to kind of push it. Rush it. Yeah. But will you do that through your own your I new newly formed uh, yeah. book publishing outfit? What's Why been not? interesting with that is I can turn things around much quicker. I mean, I've got some bigger things to do with shows that I'm going to work with traditional publishers with, you know, I've got this kind of ongoing conversation with Aperture that I need to do things with Aperture again because obviously I've been very involved with Aperture so from the yeah, and Melissa Harris, you know, mm. who is still at Aperture, and, you know, Leslie Martin, who I've known for 30 years. So I need to be involved with Aperture and do things with Aperture. I think that's important. Um, but I also need to turn things round very quickly. Um, that You know, and having a small publishing company announce me to do that, and then what we've done with, the, you know, the Hackney Riviera book, we've just kind of worked out how now to get the books to bookshops without using a distributor. Oh, right. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, so that's been a, an, an interesting process. That's a key piece of the puzzle, right? Yeah, so we now have those contacts, of, and then we're finding more places all the time uh, you know, um, we've got a, you know, once you've got, you know, you've got it at photobookstore.co.uk and you've got it at PhotoEye in America and then you've got it at bookshops in, in New York, London, Tokyo, Paris, Berlin, then that's the main thing, right? Yeah. And then the other places are just smaller and you can kind of, I can write, find out who the person is at this bookshop or that, and I can write them a nice email and send them the PDF and say, will you stock this and then we found a cheap way of shipping the books now mm. and therefore yeah i mean it enables because if you use a um, distributors are great they have a function but they're gonna add a hundred percent to the price and then the bookshop adds a hundred percent to the price yeah well which is one of the reasons why the whole model is a bit is a bit fucked because yeah. you, as the as the photographer or the as the creator of the work you know if you go through a major publisher you're only going to make 
ten percent off the price yeah, of the you thing. Get, or what they're it, now offering what well, when I first started doing books, they offered you twelve percent of net. Now they offer you five or seven percent of net, mm. and a lot of these people ask you to pay for to make the book. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah of course. So, so with Hackney Riviera, I pay for it myself, and I had to sell forty percent of them to break even. Right. And I've got a hundred left after six weeks. So, like, we're way past that. Point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. That model can work. Yes. Mind you, you are already pretty well. Well, this is the thing that if I'm, you know, a young photographer, I need the publishing house, I need the bookshop to know who I am. If it's me and I'm lucky that I've been around the block a few times, if if I send someone an email and I send the book and the book is of a reasonable quality, the bookshop's more likely to read my emails, more likely to take the book. Totally. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. of course. You know, yes. So I'm going to just ask you a couple of questions to finish up. This is the sort of quick fire round, but you can yes. you don't have to answer them quickly. <laughs> well, what's the best thing you've ever done for your career? Do you think? Uh, tried to as much as possible in all the means of production. <laughs> right. <laughs> I've basically, been very self reliant. Uh, you know, have my when I was young, uh, I was a student, and everyone was at college with their kind of. Uh, buying cheap film and having a crappy camera. Mm. I had a Fuji 6-9 Fuji and the best Kodak film that you can buy. So I've got all these negatives that are, like, perfect. Right, uh, Yeah, right. they are not got cross curves or kind of weird or anything like that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, that's that been good, I think. Uh, so you tried... Yeah, you tried to be working at a very professional yes. standard from the start. Yes, right? yes. Um, is there anything that you do differently in retrospect, thinking back? When Living Room came out and there was suddenly kind of a lot of uh, interest and success, I didn't like it. I didn't want to be anyway in the public eye and I just fucked off to America and went skateboarding. Right. Because uh, that kind of launched, <laughs> that launched your, that kick-started yeah. your career in a way. That. Yeah, so maybe if uh, that I regret... In the mid-1990s, someone from one of the mega galleries wanted to represent me, and I didn't want to do it, and that was maybe a really big mistake. Right. Uh, which I was like, no, I just want to control everything myself. I don't want to do that, and I think that maybe I should have done that. Mm. Um, but what do you think you've learned about yourself through being a photographer? I don't know, I'm still kind of learning, you know, it's quite frightening being me <laughs> sometimes. Really? Yeah. Why? I don't know. I, I yeah, uh, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's difficult. I can't answer that one, I don't think, mm. you know. Yes. All right, well, I'm going to leave it there. Okay. Because um, I, uh, yes. I, I could easily go on for another hour you obviously <laughs> how long have we been talking we're just about an hour and 15 right okay. so i want to let you get on with your day but but it has been absolutely fascinating to talk to you nick i, I appreciate you doing it uh, and giving me the time it's, oh, it's been you. great thank to meet you and uh, yeah like i say i could easily uh keep keep talking to you forever but um it's been great so thank you so much thank you